0: Let's read John 13, 1 through 20. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. but but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We ask you to use it. God, use it to um, crush our pride, um, to crush our hopes of accomplishing salvation and perfection and glory on our own. God, make us dependent on you. Give us a renewed vision of your son, of his glory of his loving kindness towards us. God, we thank you this morning. Speak. Have have us listen, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So some have wondered about John. Why doesn't he fall in line with the synoptics? The synoptics is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why the differences? While each of the gospels slows as the crucifixion approaches, in John's gospel, Jesus goes really deep. He's preparing the disciples who are going to soon be now apostles for the mission ahead. And what we need to see is that John is masterly, masterfully improvising on those earlier gospels with his own witness to Jesus' ministry. It isn't that he's unaware of them. It's not that he doesn't think them valuable. It's not even that John offers his own gospel in an adversarial tone, as if this is the better way to understand it. He's not fundamentally disagreeing with the synoptic portrayal of Jesus. No, what John relies on is the church's familiarity with the synoptics, with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that way he can focus on the implications of what Jesus has done. What Jesus is going to do as his betrayal moves from prophecy to historical fact. So we need to be mindful as we read John of not only what he says, but what he kind of leaves unsaid, what he leaves behind. For instance, in Luke 22, 24, 30, we read, a dispute arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is that same point, they're in the meal. Jesus had just instructed them to take bread and wine as a reminder of his coming sacrifice. And rather than be mortified, (laughs) by the humiliation that Jesus was going to endure, his voluntary sacrifice in their place, they're squabbling over fame. The cross, the glory of the Son, the glory of the Father is shunted out of view by their pettiness. And it's against this backdrop that the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet exists in John's memory. Then there's the institution of the Lord's Supper itself. Matthew 26, Mark 14 and Luke 22 all teach Jesus' instructions, but John is remarkably silent on the subject. Does John have a problem with sacraments? Is he worried about ritualization in the meal? What's going on with John? Why, John? No, in place of the institution of the Lord's Supper, we see this story, which proclaims Jesus' sacrificial death which identifies him as the fulfillment of the law, the final Passover lamb, uniting believers into one body until he returns. That's what this passage is actually about. So rather than give repeatable instructions like the other gospels have already done, John shares the heart of Jesus' ministry. He gives the why that we so desperately want. He shows God's power, his knowledge, his authority. So we see the Son's incarnation and sacrifices as an act of service to those who are helpless, those who are wholly dependent on him for their rescue. We see the Spirit's witness in redemptive history. We see the the battle lines drawn up, Satan's machinations against Jesus' patient and careful sacrificial discipleship. As we observe John's testimony of the Lord Jesus, my intention is to bring um, three things together, just as this passage does. Um, First, we're going to look at what Acts describes as the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Second, we will consider what it means to trust Jesus, who initiates our rescue. We're going to see him as the initiator. And then finally, we're going to consider Jesus' example and what it should tell us about being At Pentecost Peter on the other side of the cross and empowered by the Spirit now remembers the words of Jesus that night. Jesus did not go to the cross thinking he had made a mistake. If only I had said things differently, if I'd done things differently. No, Jesus had come for this very purpose, to die as a sacrifice for the many. So our passage says, now Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, in verse 1, John cuts right to the chase. Jesus knows what time it is. He knows that his betrayal is at hand. He knows he has a limited opportunity to prepare his disciples for what's going to come, what's about to happen. Things that really would make the strongest soldier shirk his duty and run away, as they do. He knows they're going to turn tail and run, but he also knows why he came. He alone can accomplish redemption. He alone knows the full force of temptation. He alone is the sinless son of God. And it's more than just an awareness of timing. Um, Jesus knows who he is. He knows what God has sent him to do. He knows where he's going, and he knows how redemption is going to play out. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. John doesn't show us a Jesus who simply is responding um, to circumstances that are outside of his control. He shows us a Jesus that is Lord. And we haven't gotten there yet, but he knows those he has chosen. We're going to see that later in this passage. Judas... He isn't one of that crowd. He's sitting in the room, but he has no share in Jesus. Peter, despite his bluster, his false ideals about what discipleship is going to look like, what his own willingness to stand in for, up for Jesus, what's allowable, what's appropriate between a master and a servant, a master and a disciple, a sender and a sendee, we do need to be careful here. Often we think of God's knowledge, including um, his foreknowledge, as as a lot of data. Um, Impersonal, comprehensive, detailed. um, But God isn't just an encyclopedia of facts, counterfactuals, potentialities. His knowledge is intensely personal, and that's what we see in this passage. What I mean is, when we hear the word foreknowledge, we shouldn't be thinking of just facts, God knows. His foreknowledge is not just insight into the future or what will happen. He doesn't just look and say, I I see that happening, therefore I'm gonna tell you that that's what's happening. It is intimate knowledge of who we are, who he has created us to be, our place in his unfolding work of redemption. And that's why we read in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. When we read that, it's it's not some cold, heartless, and rigid, redemptive calculus. John doesn't leave it to us to read between the lines. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own. He loved them to the end. Or to the farthest extent, all the way, he loved them. The disciples aren't just a strategy. They're not just God's clever way of accomplishing redemption. We're not just, we are not just technical details in the plan of redemption. We're not trees to be looked past to recognize the forest. Jesus knows those he has chosen. He created them to be in personal relationship with himself. He's been with them, teaching them, and and God knows us. He knows the cost of our redemption. And at this point in John, he wants us to see that he is prepared to step into the ring on our behalf. So, do I believe that? Do I believe that Jesus loves to the utmost? Is that reflected in the way I live and the way I love others? Especially in the body of Christ. Do I believe that he can be trusted with my salvation? Are my hopes his hopes? Or am I asking him to come and bless mine? Do I believe that he knows and goes willingly in light of my sin? Do I believe that? Am I willing to act on that? Do I believe that hardship and discouragement are are things he knows and intends for me to deal with and, and, and work through in the faith that he has given? Do I believe that he came and did not cling to the glories of heaven, as we heard in the call to worship, that he actually willingly empties himself to save somebody like me. And do I believe that he went back, that he's enthroned as Lord, he's my advocate and friend, that he sent the Spirit to preserve the Word, to give us Scripture, that the testimony of his suffering acts of redemption, that he illuminates by the Spirit his plans, purposes, his divine counsel. Do I believe that? Is that affecting the way I live? the way I speak with my brother and sister in Christ. Imagine with me then, the disciples bickering over who is the greatest. Who has been around for the largest number of mighty acts? Oh, I was there, I was there, you you weren't there, but I was. Who cast out the most demons? Who healed the greatest number of people? Who got to have some private face-to-face discipleship with Jesus? I had that, you didn't, who recognized Jesus' glory and majesty first. Then Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What Jesus did was culturally insensitive. It made everyone in the room uncomfortable. as a hospitality faux pas. Washing someone's feet was one of those lowest of the low kind of tasks, but Jesus humbles himself just as he humbled himself to even become a man. He took on the role of a bondservant, and Peter is absolutely appalled as Jesus approaches him. This sort of thing just isn't proper it's, it's not right, Jesus. Why would you do this? It's just not your place. You're putting me in a bad situation. Is this a test? Am I supposed to go, no, 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 Jesus. You're, you're the master. You, I should be washing your feet. Let me read this part of the narrative again. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now but after will, afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, Peter has confessed that Jesus is God's anointed. He's the Messiah. Peter has been there at crucial moments along Jesus' road to Jerusalem. He's seen the transfiguration. And as Jesus stoops to wash his feet, it's just too much. It, it, In just as much brashness and lack of awareness as is his norm, he says to Jesus, pass. I'm not letting you wash my feet. It's too embarrassing seeing you debase yourself this way. How could I allow it to happen? But Jesus doesn't let it go there. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, Also, my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus confronts Peter with a choice. Jesus is going to wash his feet. It's the price of, you might say, fellowship with Jesus. And confronted with a choice, Peter, characteristically again, goes overboard. If he's going to let Jesus wash his feet, he might as well go ahead and wash him completely. Head and hands, too. And so let's get this straight. Jesus is absolutely teaching his disciples something about humility, about self-sacrificing service. But Jesus' words to Peter help us to see that there's more going on. It's more than an object lesson about being humble. It's not less than that, but there's more at stake. Jesus' words to Peter shout that this whole foot washing episode is pointing to his work of redemption. It's pointing to the cross. That's what he means by clean. Peter has completely misunderstood what's going on here. He's stuck in the oddity of the situation, the social unacceptability, but Jesus is talking about the way he has taken the initiative in redeeming his people for himself. It's something that they couldn't expect. Why would the master stoop to serve his people. He stepped out to do the unthinkable, and he's left the glory of heaven to redeem people who are essentially rebellious, who don't deserve God's mercy. They don't deserve it, but he's loved them to the uttermost. He's loved them. That's the point that John is trying to press into this situation. His entire ministry is actually based on this premise of self-sacrifice, humble submission to the Father's voice. In the same way that the other Gospels reflect on the coming cross through the instructions concerning the Lord's Supper, John remembers Jesus serving his disciples. Both of them get the same picture. Service, self-sacrificing service. One is instructions, remember this, do this in memory of it. John says, here's what it actually looked like to be served by the God of the universe. Yeah, he's talking humility, but he's pointing to the cross as he does it. He's trying to prepare them for the unthinkable. Our first inclination, especially as Baptists, um, may be to see baptism rather than the cross here. Materially, we have water, not wood and nails. But Jesus isn't talking about baptism. Jesus is trying to get ahead of the curve. The cross is coming. It's not very far away. The disciples are woefully unprepared for it. Peter thinks he's ready, but his responses are all over the place. He knows Jesus maybe better than most, but he hasn't yet grasped the significance of his teachings and his miracles. He's seen enough to proclaim him Christ, Messiah, but those words, when you really look at it, ring a little hollow. He doesn't get what that means, and often we don't either. And then there's Judas. Rather than trust Jesus, rather than submit to the fact that we don't have what it takes, that we need the Son to bring salvation to us because we can't attain it on our own, we often fight. Just like Peter. No, Lord, I won't allow you to do that. I can do it. I'll get myself cleaned up, and then we can talk. Then we can have this conversation when I get things right first. But Jesus is clear. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. I'm the one who initiates. I'm the one who brings redemption. You need me. So Jesus finishes making his rounds around the table, even washing the feet of the one he knows is going to betray him. And what do we see next? He puts himself back together and starts asking questions do you understand what I've done to you? The expected answer is no. He's already told Peter, you don't understand. You need something. You need the Spirit to explain it to you. But it's not time yet. So what has Jesus done? Jesus had shredded every potential barrier to self-sacrificial love. Excuses pale next to the clear example of the Lord washing the disciples' feet. Excuses rendered senseless by his command, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus leads the way in love. If he has consistently demonstrated his love and calls us to do the same, then we have our marching orders. We don't have to wonder, what would Jesus do? We don't have to have that question. He's shown us. He's told us what he would do. The question really is then, are we going to obey? Instead of getting caught up in the, well, would Jesus do that? We need to just obey. We need to follow Jesus, put ourselves behind, and let him lead. And Jesus is not naive. Loving people sacrificially isn't easy. It isn't a guarantee of success. It isn't a a, a guarantee of harmony. Humility is often rejected. It's viewed as weakness rather than embraced. And that's what we see here. Jesus is the good shepherd. He knows how to lead his people. His isn't an idealized notion of what discipleship and spiritual leadership looks like. As we attempt to lead with the gospel, we can expect exactly what Jesus experienced, exactly what Jesus received. So, briefly, let's think through leading in love. So, again, first, it's sacrificial, it's not about reputation if you're hoping that as you lead in love that people are going to love you for it, sorry, that may not happen. You may not earn a good reputation out of it. People may actually despise you because you're trying to show humility, because you're trying to follow Jesus. It wasn't about his reputation coming. He gave up the glories of heaven to come and be a man, suffer the ignominy of the cross, suffer just the injustice of the whole affair, to be killed in our place. That's not a good reputation you get here. Now, his reputation is untouchable now, but that doesn't change the fact of what he was willing to go through to give us a relationship with God. It also isn't about privacy. Um, If we're hoping that we can be self-sacrificial, but hold a portion of our life back as a private thing that Jesus can't touch and nobody is allowed to go to. I'm going to guard this portion of my life away from distraction or burden or whatever. Jesus doesn't give us that offer. Jesus offers him his whole self to his people, to his disciples. He doesn't hide it away. He shows himself to them. That's what it means to be sacrificial with his person, with his privacy. Leading with love is about leading with the gospel. Leading with the cross. If that's not our empowering paradigm, we haven't really understood sacrifice the way that Jesus understood sacrifice. He's washing their feet fully well knowing, I want you to see the cross in this. I want you to know that you need this washing, and I am the one who can provide it. And ultimately, we need to know that leading with love is loving the body. It's not a disembodied love that we can just experience this fellowship with God, and that's it. That's great. We're wonderful. Leading with love means being involved in the body of Christ. It's where we're going to experience God's love the fullest. It's where we're going to be able to express the love of God that we have known and learned the fullest. As we lead in love, we are going, as we share the gospel maybe with friends, as we try to lead our families, we're going to face misunderstanding. Um, The expression I've often heard is that the sheep often bite. It's just a reality because we're sinful. We're sinful people, and so often we don't like being led, even by the lead of love. And maybe as the final thing with Jesus here in this story, we will experience betrayal and backstabbing. Sometimes, contrary to the biting, they're just not sheep. That's what leading in love looks like. But this is also a message for the sheep, not just the shepherd. For those who follow. And ultimately, we are all sheep. Every follower of Christ, whether they've pastored for a lifetime or are a new convert, we're all sheep in need of a shepherd. So, in the same way we thought through leading in love, let's think through following in love. Washing one another's feet is not just wisdom for those who are spiritual leaders. It isn't just good big business acumen for today. You might have heard servant leadership. It's all the buzz. Washing one another's feet is actually our call as Christians, as disciples of Christ. And so the question is, what does that look like for you? Does it look like opening up your own mess? Moving on from my home is a mess to welcome to my home. Moving on from life is messy and I just don't have bandwidth to God use my life to strengthen others. We need to let people see the real us, even if it isn't the shining vision we would like it to be. We need to build real relationships. We need to humbly accept our limitations and invite people to shape us and be shaped by us. That's what Christian community is all about. Ultimately, this is what Jesus is doing. He's discipling at the very last moment, saying, this is what I'm about. I am about discipling, about leading in love, about you following in love. That's what he's calling them to do as well. So it's not just something he does to them. It's something that they then move and share. It's something that those that they've taught will then share. It's something that we should be doing. Following love also means don't be a Judas, don't be a betrayer. Now, I don't want to steal Brian's thunder for next week, um, but it isn't as if John hasn't been speaking through Judas in this passage. Satan and Judas have essentially conspired together to betray Jesus. They're not alone, but they've conspired to betray Jesus. We aren't really given the details of why, but it's that tension that is motivating Jesus' teaching. It gives his teaching and actions an urgency, a sense of you need to respond now, you need to do something now. Oh, the patience and kindness, the goodness of Jesus to wash this one's feet, knowing that he's a snake, knowing what he's going to do, The scripture had to be fulfilled. Jesus' betrayal uh, betrayal is an echo of David's own suffering at the hands of those he had once trusted. Unlike David, Jesus knows beforehand just what Judas is and yet still lets him into his inner circle. No, not just let, but he chooses him knowing he was going to betray him. Now, I'm not suggesting you should do that. You're not called to look for those who are going to betray you. You're not Jesus. But can we guard our hearts from sinful ambition? Can we be faithful in our confidences? John has already remarked on Judas's money-pinching. Do we give to one another with open-handed joy or is our giving more an expression of the world's value system? Or to say this another way, are we sacrificial givers? Whether of our time, our money, our lives? Or do we hold on to as much as we can, protecting me first? Do we give of ourselves like Jesus did for his disciples, or are we lovers of the world? Jesus says, don't be a lover of the world. Are we lovers of the great and glorious God who would send His son to make eternal peace. Are we lovers of what Jesus loves and and gave his life for? We lovers of the church. Following love, following in love means remembering what Jesus has already taught. Of his coming betrayal, Jesus remarks in John 13 19 I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does, you may believe that I The disciples were a mess through the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion. Could you imagine where they would have been if he hadn't prepared them? Jesus wants them to know how much he loved them, so he prepares them by his word. And so as Christians, we need to realize we are going to face spiritual conflict. The lines are going to be drawn up. We are going to face spiritual attack. And God wants us to be ready. He's given us his words. And following in love means dwelling on those words. Word, word, word. It's why we sing Scripture. It is why we pray Scripture. It's why we have been reading Scripture publicly. And it is why we preach the Scripture and not just clever stories with good moral endings. None of us is so above sin that we don't need to return constantly to God's Word for comfort, for strength, and for truth. And finally, we follow it in love by living life through gospel lenses. Jesus puts it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. It's an odd thing to say, unless we put it in the context of the cross-centered analogy we see as Jesus washes the disciples' feet. What John wants us to see is that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all engaged in the work of redemption. The the cross is Jesus' own lens for his ministry, and so it should be our lens for his ministry. Those Jesus' has chosen are to live lives colored by the gospel, and essentially our lives are not our own. Our lives are not a collection of decisions, some that are spiritual, some that are not, some that we control, some that God controls. Jesus calls us to serve one another with all of them. Jesus is not just tacking on spiritual goals to our already loaded schedules. He is reprioritizing our entire lives. Ultimately, following in love Means knowing God better. Loving God better in that knowledge. Loving God's people as Jesus has loved His own. Our men's discipleship, we've already mentioned it uh, yesterday, was uh, in 1 John 2:18 through27. And what I want to do is encourage you this afternoon, someday this week, take it out, check it out, look at it. Um, as John reminds them that they are in the last hour, that there is a spirit at work that is opposed to Christ, that they need to remember the gospel that they've heard and trust in the anointing of the Spirit. There's just so much overlap with this passage. And I, I just want to ask, do you ever stop and pause and thank God for the way he does that? The way he brings his word to bear in conversations. You hear a podcast you watch something online, you hear it in a men's or women's Bible study, you hear it from the sermon, you hear it in a song. I'd like to tell you that we plan it that way. Yeah, we're in control. We know what we're doing. We don't, at least not to that extent. It's just one of the ways that God confirms his work in the church. And so take a look at John, First uh, John 2, 18 through 27. I think it'll be helpful as you kind of deal with this passage more to see how John then applies it later um, to his church. Brothers, sisters, we can read this passage and come away with just a moral command, just an example to follow, and there's nothing wrong with that. It isn't wrong. In fact, Jesus commands us to humbly serve one another, to lay down our lives for one another. But John doesn't want us to miss the Father's love in sending the Son. John writes so that we will believe in Jesus, not just do the right things. John shows us Jesus' willing submission to the plan of the Father so that we will submit our lives to the plan of the Father. Jesus is in the command of this situation, his self sacrificing service is intentional and essential to our salvation, it is Jesus who initiates. We have to come to grips with that. We can't think that we're going to win salvation on our own. Jesus is going to have to wash us. And he intends to give us the Spirit who will remind us of all these things so that we might do them. So that we might love in the way that he loved. And so the question is, is the gospel coloring your life? Is it the lens you see your daily tasks through, your job, your children, your spouse, your friends, your school, your hopes and dreams? Is the gospel the lens you see it through? Is it the focus of your walk? If Jesus was a servant, we have to be servants. If Jesus is the one who sends. We have to bear that message and not another friend, if you have not received Christ, he invites you to come and know his love. He came to redeem a people, and the fact that you sin is not a surprise to him. The fact that you need someone to clean you, actually to breathe life into you, is not lost on him. He humbled himself to purchase your salvation. Would you pray with me? Father, would you take this word, let the spirit move. God, may we replace our idols, those things that we lift up as our loves that we try to replace you with. God, would we turn to you? God, would you be just the magnificent, brilliant, glorious light that you are? May we know you better. May we love one another better from having seen you clearly. Father, make us humble like your son. Send us. In Jesus' name, amen.